This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. I'm Eric Golden, and my guest today is Matt Ballenzweig, co-head of trading and lending at Genesis, where he's responsible for trading, origination, and execution of all digital assets and loans. I got connected with Matt when I started trying to find out how investors are able to generate double-digit yields by lending out their crypto assets. Beyond answering this question, we also discussed how traditional prime brokerage works and the unique set of challenges of building similar infrastructure in crypto. Please enjoy this discussion with Matt Balanswag. So I'm excited to have Matt Balanswag today on the show. Matt, when you think about interest rates, money market fund yields 0.01%, high yield, as high as it could be, a high yield savings account is 0.50%. And in crypto, you can get 7 to 10 plus percent. And when I started to dive into this, everyone told me, you need to talk to Genesis. It's at the center of all of this. And Matt's the top person to speak to. So I thought it would be great just to start to kind of explain why does this massive difference in interest rates exist? Thanks for having me on, Eric. And I think the answer is really twofold. The first being, it's a much smaller market overall. So crypto lending markets and yield markets at the institutional level maybe is about 100 to $200 billion in terms of active loans outstanding in the market. Genesis today, we're about $12.5 billion in terms of active loans. So call it 10 to 15% of the market share is probably where I'd peg us. When you think about the money market, market size relative to crypto, it's obviously done at a much larger scale and thus like the alpha to be generated in those markets is just going to be less naturally. So like market sizing obviously is a big part of it. And then with that comes obviously like because this is a smaller market and it's a lot more nascent and it's new, there's a lot more opportunity to generate PL and alpha by trading in cryptocurrency markets. And thus it's just a lot less mature and the infrastructure is a lot more inefficient. And so when you see rates on cash or stablecoin like USDC or USDT at seven, eight, nine, ten percent, it's really a function of where that deposit company or that lender can actually like then lend out the capital to trading firms, market makers, hedge funds, and other cryptocurrency traders. And basically, if the rate of return that they can generate is greater than that rate of 8 to 10%, then those hedge funds are going to be borrowing capital all day long, even if the rates are high. The reason that it stays high and that doesn't ultimately get arbitraged out is just because there's a fundamental lack of balance sheet being deployed into crypto. You don't see Goldman Sachs Prime and JPM Prime underwriting the trading firms and hedge funds as you do in kind of other traditional markets. And so because there's one, an inherent need for the use of cash to go trade and capture alpha, and then two, just the lack of balance sheet being supplied into the space to underwrite those trading firms to capture it, there's just this inherent spread and basis that exists causing kind of just a natural bid for cash in our market. So it ultimately really boils down to just the demand for dollars whether it's for arbitrage purposes, market making, or just speculative leverage purposes, ultimately outweighs the supply of balance sheet in crypto. And thus, there's this constant premium bid for dollars, which drives the interest rate to 7 to 10%. Whereas in other markets, the supply demands a lot more at parity. And thus, you don't see kind of rates blowing out like you do in crypto. So that's a good reason for why it's higher. Let's talk about why it's so much higher. So if I deposit, at a crypto institution and I'm going to get 7%, what are the average range of rates that those are lent out on the other side? What is the spread that these type of market makers are making? As a proxy, I bet the average lender is running somewhere between a 2 and 3% net interest margin on their entire portfolio. 
if a firm like Genesis or BlockFi or Celsius or Coinbase is taking in deposits at 7 to 8%, they're probably lending them out somewhere in the 9 to 10%, maybe 11% range. What makes crypto interesting is that sometimes, though, those spreads can really blow out where it makes sense to borrow cash in the 12 to 15% range. And that's when lending firms can actually make a lot of the money that they'll make in a year will be in those periods of high volatility and thus higher spreads where interest rates are a lot wider. You see that generally in major market moves up. So if you think back to some of the largest bull runs we had, and you were to look at the actual funding rates and interest rates, they were extremely high. And so you might see Genesis and BlockFi borrowing cash or stablecoin at 12, 15%. And everyone's like, wow, that's incredibly high. But obviously, we're lending it out to the hedge funds that are borrowing it at 15, 16% at that time, when there was just so much opportunity in the market because of how much capital was kind of coming in. A good proxy to kind of use as a way to gauge how wide those spreads are is looking at a couple things. One is you can look at the difference between where spot Bitcoin is trading versus the three-month future on CME or on some of the unregulated exchanges like Binance or FTX. You can also look at where spot is trading relative to the perpetual swap and what the hourly funding rate is by being long the swap. So those are good market proxies to say, okay, is this market really cash poor and like there's such a bid, but there's not enough coming in? Or is it like at parity? And if you think about where we are right now, those spreads are a lot lower. So they're like maybe 4 to 5% if you're looking at the future versus in a measurable run when we were touching all-time highs, they were probably 19 20%. So you can kind of see that deviation depending on kind of the market regime we're in. And a lot of that is kind of what drives where then lenders will set their deposit rates because they kind of know where the demand is going to be on the other side. A lot to break down there. So the first thing, just to say it back to you is, I give you USDC and you're willing to give me 7%. And then you're going to loan that out at something like 9 to 10%. So that's the other number. And the belief is a person borrowing at 9 to 10% can make a return in this market because there's so many inefficiencies, something higher. Is that a fair way to kind of say it back to you? Yeah. And the way that that hedge fund or trading firm might make that money, there's a variety of different ways they can do it. It might be going long spot, short future. It might be going long spot, short swap. It might be yield farming on DeFi protocols. It might be just running their own market making strategy. But yes, they're basically betting that their return on their investment on an annualized basis is going to be greater than the borrow cost they pay to Genesis. And Genesis is betting that where it's going to lend out to those funds is going to be greater than where they're taking in from their depositors. And then let's talk about one of those trades in particular, because I hear it quoted a lot, but I think it would be helpful to just have you explain it. This idea of going long spot and then shorting the near-term future and what type of interest rate or yield the singular trade creates. This has been probably the most popular trade put on in the last two years in crypto. And its attractiveness has obviously gone down because it's become a much more crowded trade and there's a lot less juice to squeeze. But if you were looking at, let's say, like the average return on this trade in 2020, it was something like 20%. And if you looked at it in 2021, it's probably like 7%. And and I bet in 2022 this year, it's probably going to be somewhere a bit lower until there's a point of efficiency. But basically, the mechanism and the mechanics of how this trade is put on is, let's say you have cash or stablecoin on hand. You can basically take that stablecoin or cash and buy Bitcoin, whether it's on an exchange or through an OTC desk. And so you're basically just taking a delta long view on Bitcoin. And then you're simultaneously on some sort of derivative exchange, whether it's the CME because you're a regulated entity, or it's FTX because it has a lot more liquidity and just different products you can trade, and you don't care about trading on a regulated exchange. You can then basically sell the three-month or six-month or 12-month future and basically locking in a spread. So now you're short one instrument at a higher price, you're long the same asset, the spot asset at the lower price, and you've captured that spread. And basically, the way that this now plays out is, let's say, at the three-month expiry, your hypothesis, obviously, is that the spread between where the future is trading on that day versus spot market is basically going to be in line because it's going to be the day of expiry. And so at that point, you'd simply just unwind the trade you put on by going long the future and selling your spot asset. And what you're able to do is just collect that initial spread that you made when you first put the trade on. The total return is basically the initial spread you're capturing by selling the higher price future and buying spot. And your cost on that is just really your cost of dollars. It's like, okay, 
The only thing I had to do to put that trade on was post capital on the spot leg. And so if you don't have cash and you can borrow cash, then you have to say, okay, great. Is my borrow cost on that cash going to be less than the return I made on the spread on an annualized basis? So if it's three months, you have to kind of do the math to basically take whatever that spread is and annualize it because your borrow cost is always going to be on an annualized basis. So that's like the mechanics of putting on the long spot, short future trade. A slight deviance to that or slight variety of it is something that's a little shorter term. So you're not actually waiting for expiry, but you're basically buying spot with dollars or stablecoin the same way you did. And you're selling the perpetual swap, which doesn't have a set expiry, but rather there's more open interest on the longer short side. There's an hourly funding rate paid to those that are taking the opposite view. So in a bull market, if you're short that perp, then you're basically collecting a funding. And if you're in a bear market, if you're long that perp, you're collecting a funding. So that's another way to do it. The concept's basically the same. It's you're assuming that the return generated on that trade is enough to offset your fixed interest rate cost on borrowing dollars. Is this a popular trade just to do for people that have large amounts of spot, Never mind doing it by using cash and leverage where they're just like, okay, I have Bitcoin. A way to generate yield is to do this type of trade? Yeah, definitely. I think that's another way to think about it. It's like, okay, if you're delta long Bitcoin, and you want to actually hedge some of that out to generate fixed interest, then you can either basically go short the future or short the perp, but you are then sacrificing some of your delta on the long side. Now you're not capturing as much upside if the price were to rip because you're short some hedge, whether it's the future or perp. So if you're of the mindset that you're saying, I actually want to take some delta risk off the table and basically convert that into just a fixed interest rate, then it's a great way to do that. But you do have to keep in mind, it's not delta neutral if you do it that way, because you're actually reducing your upside exposure. Whereas if you're borrowing cash, you're not taking any delta view. You're simply just purely hedge. Explain what it means to have a delta view and be delta long and delta neutral. All delta long means is that you are exposed to the price of Bitcoin going higher. Delta short is you're exposed to the price of Bitcoin going lower. That's really all that means. It means you're taking a long view or a short view. When you make a loan, so Genesis has this really large lending desk and you have a counterparty. Are those loans collateralized, uncollateralized? How does that loan actually come to be? The answer is it's a mix. A lot of our lending is fully collateralized. And this looks like a very simple securities lending in traditional finance or cash repo in traditional finance where, let's say, a hedge fund wants to really just take a levered long position and almost margin trade through Genesis. They can borrow dollars and buy Bitcoin through our trading desk. We hold the Bitcoin that they purchased as collateral, plus a little bit of excess margin from the counterparty, and we lend them the dollars to get long. So it's a fully collateralized over collateralized dollar loan against Bitcoin collateral. The inverse of that is them basically borrowing, let's say, Ether to get short. And they might actually need the borrow of, of ETH. They then sell that to Genesis for dollar proceeds. We hold the dollar proceeds as collateral to back the ETH loan, plus some sort of excess margin. We call that leverage trading. It's all fully collateralized. And it's about, say, a third of our portfolio or so. So that's like the fully collateralized vanilla margin trading. Then there's market making. Rather than just taking a directional view and using Genesis as a place to get leverage, firms might actually want to take capital off platform. Even then, it might be fully collateralized. We're like, hey, I need dollars. I'm willing to post Bitcoin take my Bitcoin and I'm just taking the dollars to do other things with, but they're not actually like margin trading through us. They're just simply swapping Bitcoin for dollars and paying us an interest rate to do so. Or conversely, they might be borrowing Luna or ETH or any other alt against some other crypto because they have some use case for that asset elsewhere. That's another part of the portfolio, call it another 25%. And then there's other folks that they actually need balance sheets. We actually have to take risk on them as a firm. It might be a really large, well-capitalized dealer in crypto. So think like Cumberland or Jane Street or Jump or Alameda. Folks that have a lot of equity capital on their balance sheet, they're a large organization, but they need to take on debt to actually just have working capital on hand to manage their business. So obviously that's a different risk profile loan because we're not actually taking the collateral to back the loan. It's more us giving balance sheet to those counterparties because we have recourse to them as a corporate entity. Though the collateral is not liquid, we still obviously have rights to reclaim our risk or our assets by actually going after them as a company. So it's obviously a different style of lending. And then lastly, there's more non-trading related lending that we do. So think minor finance is a good example where 
you have a company that wants to take dollars to purchase new mining equipment and they want to go post those at Core Scientific, we can kind of think through the mining economics and work with one of our other sister companies, Foundry, to kind of assess that deal. And we might actually then lend dollars for that company to go basically revamp their mining facility and, and build out their site. So the lending we do is, is really a mixed bag. Like we're a very comprehensive lending firm, a very market-driven, fully collateralized lending, but there are also these other segments that we explore as well. In traditional finance, I can't point to any like documentation on it, but I was always heard brokerage companies that allowed margin trading, as much as it seemed like risk, never lost money. And the reason was is because they have the assets in-house. So what could you do with it? If you want to go buy stock and you want to give them as much leverage as they want, whatever they buy, as long as it's fully collateralized, they have the equity. As soon as enough of a loss is there, they can just wipe you out and keep the money. So while it sounds like a very risky business, collateralized lending might be one of the greatest business of all time. So I'm curious that I want to move to uncollateralized where it seems that all of the world's crises and financial crashes come from. But on the collateralized side, is it fair to assume it's just like a zero loss business for someone like Genesis? Like you can't really lose because of how quick you could execute if it starts to go against you? It's a good distinguishment of the two different types of lending because they are very different. And I'd say for the collateralized lending, it is very risk mitigated in that you have, to your point, in traditional securities-based lending, you're holding a basket of highly liquid equities or stocks you can basically sell as collateral and the LTV is struck at a level that's conservative. So you need this big move down. And even then you can just kind of sell the assets out to close your loan. It basically works the same exact way in in crypto, fully collateralized lending. If a hedge fund is borrowing USDC against your Bitcoin, and let's say we started them at a 50% LTV where we hold two to one, the value of the loan to collateral, even in a big move down, we have all of that liquid BTC on hand. Genesis is also one of the most connected liquidity providers and trading firms in the space to where we have relationships set up across a variety of different spot and derivative exchanges so that we can do this very systematically and we can easily sell out of the collateral to cover our loan, pay ourselves back the loan proceeds, and then return the rest to the client. So it's a very, very risk-mitigated business because of how well equipped we are to kind of manage the volatility and actually be able to execute if we need to. And then the fact that we've also just started dealing with some of the largest kind of institutional counterparties in the space. And you can compare that to like prime lending as well, the equities world where it's not like this is really retail. It's not a retail business. You're dealing with major funds and you also have liquid collateral on hand. So it is quite risk mitigated. We've never had any capital losses or defaults on our book in that business. So to your point, it's a great business in that it's widely used It's critical to a lot of the trading activity that happens in the institutional market. And if you're comfortable managing that kind of balance sheet and volatility risk, then it's a good business to get into. I agree with your point there. And so back to those percentages, what percentage of that 12.5 to $15 billion of loan is collateralized versus uncollateralized? Looking at our book, we're usually trading anywhere between 85 to 95% of our total portfolio is held by or backed by lip collateral. So it's a small percentage of our portfolio that we actually do take kind of credit risk with. And that obviously can vary company to company, lender to lender too, but that's kind of historic where we've managed our total collateral level relative to our total loan level. Moving to the uncollateralized side, what is the process that Genesis takes when a new client comes on? And how do you get to that level where you're willing to actually start to accept that credit risk from a counterparty? This is obviously like where the important distinguishment is. The process to basically get an unsecured loan from Genesis or for us to be willing to take credit risk on you is a lot different than the process to basically borrow at a 50% LTV fully secured. We really reserve this part of our business to some of the largest trading firms in the world not even just crypto. For starters, right before you even get into the underwriting process, there are some of the well-known commodities trading firms or electronic trading firms in Chicago. It might be the Jump Tradings, the Susquehannas of the world, right? Really well-capitalized firms that not only are just trading crypto, but like have a mandate to trade other assets as well. They're not totally concentrated to the crypto ecosystem. And just given the recourse we have to them and their kind of general parent entity, it can make sense for us to take risk on them, depending on kind of what the use of proceeds are. And so that's kind of the first part. Is this a major well-known firm? Are they a public company? If not, are they a multi-billion dollar equity firm? And basically kind of trying to size how much risk can we take? And then also like, are there any other lenders that have liens on their balance sheet that 
would have like a first lien over Genesis. So we're really trying to figure out like how much of their equity pie is available for us to get recourse to if we did want to take risk on them. So we go through that kind of general sizing and counterparty assessment. And then from there, it's really trying to understand exactly like why they need capital from Genesis. Why can't they just go to their other prime lenders? And what's the specific kind of situation or what's the specific use case? And really trying to just understand from their perspective, okay, why does this actually make sense for them to do? Then from there, it's really like, okay, how can we structure the loan so that we feel good about not only like the conceptual recourse we have to their balance sheet if they were to default, but also like practically, could we reclaim those assets? Are they liquid? So looking at the composition of their balance sheet of current and liquid assets versus stuff that's just longer term or that's going to be harder for us to actually liquidate if we needed to pay ourselves back. And then from there, it's doing even more of a deep dive, trying to get transparency into which exchanges are they going to be using the capital on? Can they produce reporting for us so that we can get comfortable with the ongoing risk assessment of the loan? So this is a much more involved process that we really use our credit and underwriting team. This is where they come in to help manage this process. We've taken experts that did this at JP Morgan or Goldman Prime that were basically head of credit and are trying to recreate the wheel to some degree here, but with the context of the crypto market structure. Credit experts, obviously, at Genesis that look at all of this that help determine yes or no, do we want to take risk? If so, how much size? If we do, then how are we going to manage it, both legal structure-wise and reporting-wise? And then ultimately, we get comfortable making the loan. Then it becomes great. We've established some track record. Can we continue sizing things up over time? And that's generally like how we think about taking real credit risk on firms. But to my point earlier, it is a much more rigorous process than just kind of your standard vanilla fully collateralized lending. And it's also a much smaller part of our book than that business as well. So in the past, you've talked about these use of proceeds being bucketed into you have these people that want to speculate long or short. They want to take a levered bet, hopefully maximize their returns, but also goes the other way. Then you have market neutral firms, and then you have these non-trading like the miners. On the uncollateralized side, first of all, are there other categories to break it into? And then on the uncollateralized, how would you break out the type of counterparties that are using and how they're using that debt? On the unsecured front, a lot of it is really just large dealers that either don't want to do one of two things. One is they need more working capital and inventory on hand to manage their own portfolios and client trading flow. So I think if you're like a desk like Cumberland and you're moving two to 3,000 Bitcoin around per trade, you need inventory on hand to park on different exchanges and to settle with counterparties. And so it's by expanding their balance sheet, it makes them more nimble and able to actually facilitate client flow and trading. So that's a big part of it. And if you think there's a lot of big sell-side desks out there, right? There's Cumberland, there's Alameda, there's Jane Street, there's Chump, there's Amber, there's Wintermute. There's a lot of these big sell-side trading firms that need debt and balance sheet. I'd say the primary use case is really just to basically extend them working capital to manage their flow. The other is systematic market-neutral trading. Some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, where if there's opportunities to use capital to go long the spot market and then short some perps on Binance or FTX, they might want to lever those trades up and they might need capital from us to do it. So that's where we get transparency and say, okay, great show us your balances on exchanges so we can actually see that it's true you're market neutral and provide these Delta reports for us showing that as well. Between inventory and balance sheet management and then market neutral trading, that's like a bulk of what we would lend into on an unsecured basis after going through the rigorous credit reviews and things of that nature. So I'm going to come back later to the systemic risk in the crypto system. But just to end here on this point, have you had any defaults or loan losses on the uncollateralized book of business? To date, we've had no capital losses on the unsecured lending business as well. So Genesis basically has a clean sheet from inception to date. And we started our business back in March of 2018, and we're here now in March of 2022. So a full four years of no losses on our loan portfolio. And we've obviously seen some of the craziest moves up and moves down in that period of time. So obviously, the machine's working as intended. That being said, like we're always prepared to mitigate any sort of defaults that we'd face. And thus, we obviously think about things like an insurance fund and having enough equity in our balance sheet to protect against those kinds of events. But to date, we've actually never realized them. As a former fixed income credit guy, I don't take it lightly, but four years in crypto with this volatility and no losses is a very impressive feat. I'd like to zoom out and talk about the business of Genesis. 
give us like a thumbnail sketch of what does Genesis do? What are the different divisions? How does it make money beyond just the lending business? Genesis, you can think of holistically as a digital currency prime broker. What that means is we really have three to four active P&L lines, you can call them. So one is spot trading, which was actually our first business. And that's really just market making in large sizes in the institutional space. Our counterparties are largest crypto native funds and really anybody that wants a spot market that's tight and sizable. We run one of the larger OTC spot trading businesses in crypto today. The second business is that of lending and and financing, which we just spoke about. But that is another huge part of our revenue generation, our business line. Not only obviously is it critical to our business, but it is critical to the market at large. People need access to debt and capital. And it's honestly allowed for a lot more liquidity in crypto over the last few years because you have these lenders and coming in providing balance sheet to the trading firms. And we were one of the first to do it, at least on the institutional side. We started the desk back in 2018 when I joined. There were basically no other institutional lenders out there. There were maybe the early derivative exchanges like BitMEX, but there wasn't much of a borrow market out there. So we did have a big need to kind of fill early on. Then we also have a derivatives trading business. So we brought on Josh Lim, who came from Galaxy. Previous to Galaxy, he was at Circle. And previous to Circle, he was at Goldman. So he's obviously been trading derivatives for quite some time. And he spearheaded the evolution of that business for us back in late 2020. So that's a huge part of our business today too. So anybody that's trading options, we make markets in options across different assets, not just Bitcoin. Bitcoin and ETH are obviously a large percentage of our book, but we also do bilateral options trading across a lot of the L1s as well. And then lastly is custody. So custody is a huge part of really any prime broker. It's a way for our institutional counterparties to hold their assets with us. And then ideally, the plan is to then be enabled to do other things like trading and borrow against them and write calls on the assets. Genesis is trying to really be as this one-stop shop, institutional-grade platform for really all the major trading participants in crypto. And through those businesses, along with safe haven to hold those assets through our custody, that's ultimately we're trying to create and powered by a great technology platform where you can kind of feel the synergies across those businesses. So one interesting point you made just there was that prior to 2018, there wasn't really anyone filling this need of the prime crypto broker to allow for people to borrow. And you made that point about healthy market structure. I think that's interesting and sometimes misunderstood by people is how by being able to borrow something, you can short it, which might make markets not just go straight parabolic and then crash and allow people to like in 2017 during a run or even before that, if there wasn't any way to short the security, there's nothing kind of stopping it. How do you think about healthy market structure and short sellers? I think that they can be villainized at times, but how do you think it helps a market function? Yeah, I think my take on that is that in any efficient, highly liquid, mature market, there needs to be room for speculation on both sides. It cannot be a one-sided market. And if there's no way to take a speculative view on the downside, then ultimately it's going to come back to bite you because at some point that's going to be able to happen. And then as soon as it is, you'll start to see, obviously, risk get put on the other way. So I do think it goes both ways. And then obviously too, on the flip side, right? people villainize short sellers. But at the same time, if there's too much short pressure on an asset, whether it's spot short or open interest on the short future, and then there's a big catalyst move up, Now it's like you have all those shorts to kind of blow through, which is going to actually accelerate the price higher, which is what we call a short squeeze in a big bull run. So despite obviously adding sell pressure in a bearish or neutral market, when the market does kick bullish, people are going to get short squeezed out and it's going to obviously add to the acceleration of the run of the asset. But philosophically, I think there has to be robust liquidity and products and markets on both sides of the equation for it to be considered a healthy, mature market. Going back to Genesis and this business model of a prime broker, how much of this is modeled off traditional prime brokerage? And help us understand what does a traditional prime broker do as just from a function standpoint? A lot of it is modeled off of a traditional prime broker. So if you think of who the biggest traditional primes are in non-crypto asset classes, some of the largest banks out there. So Goldman Sachs Prime, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, these have historically been the incumbent prime brokers in the traditional asset space. And the reasons that exist is because one, they have a very low cost of capital being a bank. They actually have access to their balance sheet at call it 1% and they can finance other firms because their cost of capital is so cheap and they have a lot of it. 
Two is like they have these trading desks set up to obviously trade markets globally and provide a two-sided market for their institutional client base, which when you think of a prime broker in the traditional world, their clients are basically hedge funds. Kind of combine like the balance sheet, a low cost of capital and robust liquidity. And that gets you your prime broker. And you're giving basically specialized treatment to major hedge funds that need to move a lot of money and access basically every kind of market out there through one centralized partner. That's really what Genesis is trying to be with obviously a focus on digital assets. I think despite there being a lot of similarity in terms of the conceptual structure and framework of what a prime broker is, there's obviously a lot of nuanced differences in crypto. And so you're going to start to see that take shape and form. It's like, how do you think about staking? If we're going to custody your assets, do we have to stake them for you? What's the difference between lending and staking? There's a lot more on-chain things you can be doing with your assets. So it's like, will we create products and services to allow people that keep their assets in custody with us the ability to access yields generated on-chain? Will we put those in a pool to generate alpha? There's kind of like these new things to think about and how you incorporate them in a prime broker in crypto. But the initial framework, the use case of a prime broker, I think, is the same between traditional markets and crypto. It's really like a central point of access for everything trading and financing and safeguarding of those assets. I had a tweet from you that said, crypto trading firms need to stay true to their crypto native roots. It goes on to talk about kind of TradeFi wanting a part of your pie. So I would just be curious, if you look at the business you're building, it would seem obvious that you've got the TradeFi world over here, you've got crypto over here, and then slowly those worlds are going to try to bleed into each other. That Goldman Sachs prime brokerage eventually is going to say, hey, we can do this too. Likewise, Genesis could say, oh, yeah, we can also go to that same macro fund and issue equities. Tell me why, and maybe I'm misunderstanding you, those worlds aren't going to blend as simplistically as I'm saying, because they're so different from a structural standpoint. My thesis on this is that they will start to blend. But I think that naturally, traditional funds and basically like the banks, the existing primes today, are likely going to stay in their lane. And then I think those that have developed these robust crypto platforms and understandings of crypto market structure can leverage that really to kind of act as an intermediary between traditional primes and those that need capital in crypto markets. So if you think about that intersection, there's really only a few firms that play in both the institutional world and understand crypto market structure the way that you kind of need to, to have a moat in the space. So think of companies like Genesis, fully backed by DCG, which is a multi-billion dollar organization. We have about a half a billion dollars of equity on our own balance sheet. So we have this kind of institutional pedigree and background where we can go raise debt from banks. Banks are willing to underwrite Genesis risk. That gives us an infusion of capital. And now we can go face some of the more crypto native businesses or funds or protocols on our side and capture the best of both worlds and and run really like a principal business that basically makes money by borrowing at one rate and then underwriting things at a higher rate. By being a crypto native firm first, I think that gives us the edge to continue to run our business. And there's a lot of other businesses out there like us, whether it's Galaxy or NYDIG or BlockFi or Coinbase, that I think will dominate that segment where we can actually go direct to traditional Wall Street and major bold bracket banks to get financing and capital and have a trading relationship open there. But then we'll kind of dominate the crypto native side. I don't see a world where Goldman Sachs is going to underwrite DGEN crypto trading firms that you see in our market. But obviously, like Genesis understanding the risk and understanding the trading profile and what's happening will. So that to me is like the distinguished how these markets will all come together is that like you need these people right in the middle that can plan both sides and then basically everybody wins. It's kind of like a litmus test of like when you hear the word DJ and do you think that's a very negative or a compliment? You can separate oh, the it's always a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I think I know the answer about it is to ask it for completeness. Do you see Genesis ever bridging that prime brokerage business into traditional assets? It's not going to be our focus for the next couple of years. Mainly because like we just think there's a ton of opportunity in this market. Our mission is to be a digital currency focused firm at the DCG level, at the Genesis level. So it wouldn't make sense for us to go try and compete and spend resourcing to try and take flow in traditional assets. We think we have a big balance sheet in crypto, but we're not going to be able to compete with JPM on the equity or fixed income or currency and commodities trading sides. For us, it makes a lot more sense for us to kind of build our footprint here and make sure we're defending our moat and also like the beneficiary as, as the, the digital currency trading market grows, 
we want to obviously maintain our piece of that pie because we think that pie is going to get a lot bigger. Thinking about that versus trying to do that in traditional markets just doesn't really make sense from a trade-off perspective. And we have finite resources and capital to spend. So it's really going to go all into crypto. I think now it'd be interesting to just hear your take on, explain the background of DCG and Genesis. What is DCG? It's founding. How does Genesis play a role in this DCG empire? So DCG has evolved a ton since I started. For those that don't know, digital currency, um, they're one of the earliest investors in crypto, led by a man named Barry Silbert, who's one of the early Bitcoin evangelists, comes from a traditional finance background, used to be a banker at Hulahan Loki, started a company called Second Market, which was a broker-dealer that traded the liquid securities. They trade a lot of Facebook private stock back in the day and you know, they're just kind of the liquid assets. And then Barry ultimately turned that into Digital Currency Group and sold that business to NASDAQ, I think in 2014 or 15, to really focus solely on uh, Bitcoin and building businesses around digital currency. So that was the birth of Genesis. And we basically used that broker dealer that was second market and turned it into Genesis to basically be a broker dealer that made two-sided markets in Bitcoin. So that's how we got our start. At the same time, DCG was the whole owner of Genesis. So they basically spun out Genesis separate from DCG, where they now have this holdings company called Digital Currency Group, and they were 100% owner of Genesis. DCG at the same time also owned Bitcoin on its balance sheet and started buying other crypto assets in addition to investing in a lot of the early stage companies in crypto. So think Ripple, Zappo, Coinbase, BitGo, the very early crypto financial services firms. So they started building their venture portfolio and really were mostly active in the small seed, like 500K to $1 million rounds, but had a broad exposure to the space. From there, they then started Grayscale Asset Management, which is the sponsor of the Bitcoin Investment Trust and obviously the largest asset manager in the digital currency space with now a multitude of different products outside of Bitcoin. And then they started Coindesk, which is the news and media group, and now also own Luno, which is a retail exchange, and also Foundry, which is our mining and staking business. So you could think of DCG as really this powerhouse holdings company, similar to like a Berkshire, that really has core operating companies. So Genesis, Grayscale, Foundry, and then also has a venture portfolio to get this upside as obviously the space just continues to evolve and unfold. There's a lot of dialogue between founders of DCG and the management of Genesis, but that's generally how we're laid out today. Earlier, you kind of talked about how the mission of Genesis is that interplay between you have these clients we're talking about that are coming to you to either borrow or to securities lend. How does Genesis play as a puzzle? For your mining operations, you've got Foundry. How much interplay do you have with other DCG companies? This is one of the greatest parts of DCG. So Genesis, not only obviously does it help the other subsidiaries, which I'll kind of get into, but we also get such great access to information from DCG being just this nexus in the space and being involved in all components of early stage companies to public companies to basically all flow that happens in, in the ecosystem, which obviously we can use to kind of help inform our decision making. And then there's a ton of synergies across the different subsidiaries. Using Genesis, right, as kind of this bedrock, we interact with basically every subsidiary in a meaningful way. So starting with Grayscale, we're actually the authorized participant for all of the different trusts. So anytime an order is placed into one of the vehicles, we actually have to go out and source the underlying for that trust. So we have this authorized participant relationship with Grayscale, then shifting gears to Luno, which is a very rapidly growing exchange in Asia that is also going to have a presence here in the US. We're the backend yield partner to their deposit program. So anybody that's using Luno, similar to like a Gemini Earn or a Ledin or a BlockFi, all of those assets actually get then swept over to Genesis so that we can utilize them in our lending business and we pay yield to Luno. And then Foundry, there's a ton of synergy with. One of the initial activities they conduct in their business outside of just kind of staking and mining was actually financing other companies' purchases of new mining equipment and new facilities. So we would actually use our balance sheet to help provide the financing to Foundry, who would then in turn provide the financing to the end user. So there's a ton of synergy there. And then obviously DCG, the parent company in Genesis Interact too. We have excess capital on our balance sheet that they might need for some sort of investment opportunity. We can be a source of liquidity and capital to them. If they have excess capital because they just raised from the public market, 
then great, they might pass that down to Genesis because there's some sort of opportunity we want to take advantage of. So we do think about ROI in a very top-down way. We're very thoughtful about how we deploy capital across those businesses. And we don't want it to be siloed, right? If there's a great opportunity for Grayscale or Foundry or DCG, then great. Let's think about how Genesis might be able to work within the realm there to help those subsidiaries out, which I think is the right way to do it. So you kind of get the synergies and like economies of scale uh, across the different businesses. When that trade was happening with the Grayscale fund where there was a premium, was it like you were all parts of that trade where people were coming to you, borrowing, delivering Bitcoin, like cycling it through because you were both sides of the trade? When GBTC basically traded at a premium to Bitcoin spot and NAV of the actual private placement, a very popular trade that this was like 2020, early 2021, popular trade was basically hedge funds that wanted to basically bet on the premium existing for a forward period of time, whether it was six months, I think the lock was six months. And so their trade is like, okay, great. We can capture this premium so long as it stays at a premium. The way to do that is you can borrow Bitcoin from a lender, whether it's BlockFi or Genesis, and then you can basically contribute it directly in kind into the private placement vehicle to get issued shares at the Bitcoin trust nav which trades right by this Bitcoin spot. And then basically all you do is wait six months and then you get shares that get issued to your brokerage account, whether it's held at Fidelity or wherever. And if there was still a 25% premium or any premium, you basically just sell those shares for dollars and buy back Bitcoin underlying. And then you return the loan to the lender and you basically captured that premium. Sounds so good. The crux of that sounds so good. The crux of that trade is that you really need that premium to persist. And as markets became more efficient and as other ETF products came about in Canada with less fees, that premium really went away. And now it's obviously trading at a discount. So anybody that got stuck in that trade while it shifted from a premium to discount is now underwater, whatever the difference of the discount is to spot relative to spot. And they might choose to just sit in that unrealized loss and basically continue to pay a borrow cost to maintain the position. Or they might say, okay, I'm out of this trade and realize the discount loss and take a realized loss but exit the trade. So we did see some firms get hit by doing that. It was a small part of our portfolio at the time. And and to my point earlier, those that were doing that trade or at least borrowing from Genesis to put that trade on, we obviously thought about that trade not in isolation. But if that trade were to go south, how much recourse should we have to that firm holistically to where this still makes sense to do? So we were really only conducting that trade with pretty well-capitalized large trading firms and not just dealing with a small special purpose vehicle just for the point of putting that trade on that we're now just exposed to the economics of the trade. So those are all the things that were happening at that point in the market. And it did play out in some weird ways for some firms, but it was an interesting time and I'm sure a good lesson learned for a lot of different counterparties in the space. So I'm curious from a cultural standpoint, because I'm really impressed with Barry's firm and how he's built this up. Do you feel like you work for DCG or do you feel like you work for Genesis? I think both. I think obviously in my day-to-day, it's much more Genesis. What are our strategic goals? How are we tracking to them? What else can we be doing to kind of push our business forward? So there's a lot more strategic thinking at the Genesis level. And then obviously like managing our portfolio and P&L and people to build a great company. Like it's first and foremost Genesis. I think that's where 90% of my energy is focused is really solely in our business and our business's future. But that being said, it's like hard not to have your antennas up to kind of hear what's going on at DCG and the other subsidiaries they're building and naturally thinking about, oh, is there anything we can be doing with them? Or how do we help? And who's leading the team over there? And what kind of context can we give them about Genesis to help grease the skin? So there's always this DCG hat that I wear in addition to my Genesis hat, but it obviously just kind of naturally takes a lot less of my energy. But it's always part of the way I think about the world and opportunity sets, even during just my time spent thinking about Genesis. If it's not applicable to Genesis, is it applicable to DCG or can it be? And who can I introduce to capture that opportunity? You mentioned BlockFi, Gemini, Celsius. How integral is Genesis behind those platforms versus they're doing something competitive to Genesis? So they're more of a partner versus a competitor. It really depends on who it is and how they want to compete. So 
Genesis has always said, okay, we want to be the institutional yield partner to other platforms out there and to our own clients that basically want to just use Genesis as the yield proxy and basically admitting that Genesis is going to be best positioned to underwrite risk in this market. And so rather than doing it myself, I'm going to use a trusted partner to generate yield, let them do the underwriting, the onboarding, collateral market risk management, the sizing of trades, and I'm just going to earn my yield. Versus other platforms that says, we actually want to compete in the same vertical. Like We want to do the underwriting of risk ourselves. We think we're equipped to do it and we want to have a trading business. And so you can kind of start to see, okay, who are the other institutional counterparties that are in the lending borrowing game that also have trading businesses that feel that they can underwrite, manage the deployment of capital in addition to just the deposit intake. Folks that aren't using Genesis would be like Coinbase, BlockFi, Celsius, Nidig, Galaxy. They're running their own verticals that are going to compete with Genesis. They have robust trading businesses. They have borrowing. They have custody. Whereas folks like, let's say, Luna or Ledin or Bitcoin IRA or Gemini, their bread and butter is really providing a great client experience. And they want to build platforms around that. And they're not in the brokerage and trading business. And so they're saying, okay, great. Let's just pick a really great white glove, best-in-class lending partner to help generate yield for our counterparties. And so that's really Gemini. They're a huge... Part of our business where anybody that's on the Gemini Earn platform, all those assets get aggregated and sent over to Genesis. And there are other relationships we have like that. So it really depends on just the direction and goal, how people are trying to win and compete that drives that market structure. So this might have nothing to do with it. And I know it's not your area of expertise, but I'd love to get your just take on it from an industry standpoint. Is that BlockFi got a $100 million SEC fine for paying out interest. Coinbase got a Wells notice to not even start it by calling it Lend, but then Gemini has Earn. Is there anything in the fact, is it just coincidence that my brain's connecting this dot now that Gemini is not doing it directly, they're outsourcing it to a partner and the other two are doing it directly that causes them trouble? Or why can one counterparty offer interest, but others can't? One is just a function of, if you think about like who's been the most public outspoken, great brand in the market for the longest period of time. Like BlockFi has always been that number one retail deposit platform. Naturally, they're going to, I think, catch the eye of a regulator first. How the dominoes fall after that, I think, is still very much unclear. But what's good is that at least seeing the BlockFi settlement at least shows that there is a path to doing this in a registered manner where you can work with the SEC as a regulator and basically create a registered yield offering in the market and that there's room for that to exist. What the SEC is going to do backward looking and how they want to go about that, I think is going to be very company specific. For Genesis, at least our take is that we've obviously always been an institutional platform. We don't have a retail product. We're facing firms bilaterally via master loan agreements or master repo agreements And we're structuring these things intentionally with the purpose of not offering a broad-based retail savings product. Whereas other firms have basically marketed themselves as we have this retail deposit account product. And I think that's a big part of it. And obviously, we always want to play in that institutional world. We're not trying to be retail deposit platform in any way. And that's the dialogue we've maintained and obviously do maintain with the SEC. So I think it's very much firm-specific, but it is unclear how the dominoes are going to fall after that BlockFi settlement. But at least... The benefit is that there's a visible path to doing it now, despite how challenging it might be. Switching gears, I love the crypto markets and the volatility is something I've never experienced compared to traditional markets. One thing I'd love to get your perspective on is how drawdowns, when those happen, how the the systems are tested. So you had COVID and then you had May of last summer where the market fell. You probably have the numbers, but in like a 48 hour, I I felt like it dropped 50%. And I think the thing that struck me, and this is one of our first times we met, I asked you about this, is that type of event would have been absolutely destructive in a traditional market, especially one that was levered. And the thing that surprised me wasn't the drawdown. It was the fact that Monday, the markets opened and I couldn't find a headline of default bankruptcy. And so I'd just be curious to hear from what it feels like when the market starts to unwind that quickly, being in the center of it all and having loans out to people, how do the counterparts start to interact with one another? The evolution of how those drawdowns impact credit and liquidity, it's trending in the right direction. If you look at March 2020, that first drawdown was a massive move where we fell from like 11K to 8K to I think we hit low at 3,300. At the time, our loan portfolio was a lot smaller 
the impact of 50%, 60% drawdown was a lot more meaningful when you're running a portfolio that was of that size. So back then, I think we were probably running a loan portfolio of about 400 million of total loans outstanding. Whereas today, we're running a portfolio of about 12.5 billion. And because we're managing a smaller portfolio back then and a larger one now, that also corresponds to like how much liquidity we need to have on hand and how much working capital we need to have access to and what kind of debt facilities we need to have open to manage the ebbs and flows of the market. And back then, it was a lot tighter. Seeing that move on a smaller book when the other lenders out there were also kind of similar size to Genesis and didn't have as much liquidity on hand, you could feel that credit was tightening up very, very rapidly. We would go out to other dealers ask for where their offer would be on 1,000, 2,000 Bitcoin unsecured as kind of this interviewer market that's usually pretty robust. And we saw rates that were crazy or no supply at all. And that obviously was like, John's okay, like credit is immediately tightening. It's going to be really hard to generate any sort of infusion of balance sheet. And so we need to be really careful and manage our book very tight, not take too much risk, have robust liquidity. Then you fast forward to like the May drawdown where it was pretty meaningless. 45% intra-week and maybe like 30% intra-day. And it just felt a lot healthier than March of 2020 in that despite that, there were still lenders willing to lend. No one really ceased providing credit. Yes, rates were going higher on coin, but the overall market feel still a lot looser than back in 2020. I think a lot of that just had to do with the size of everybody's balance sheet and how much capital they were able to actually raise, whether it was equity in cash or debt in the form of cash or just deposits that they had to work with or lines of credit they had open. Like There was a lot more liquidity in the market structure and also a lot more liquidity on the derivative side where you can actually hedge a lot more robustly than you could back in March of 2020. Because of those components, it's a lot easier to manage a big drawdown now than it was two years ago. And I think that's only going to get easier and easier. So yeah, I'd say that's the color that we saw. Growing up as an investor during the 08 financial crash, it's everything I think might look systemically risky, but it's always a fun place just to see, especially where leverage and credit is involved, how interconnected it is. So when you talk about like Jump and Cumberland, Alameda, these are huge firms and the leverage number is getting bigger. So it's interesting that you say, well, I understand what you mean about there's more liquidity. It's usually that the problem might be getting bigger and bigger, that there's more interconnectedness between the firms. When you think about the systemic risk nature of crypto, do you see a knock-on effect of that you can have like a Lehman-style event? And if not, why not? There's maybe two parts to this. One, I think that the market structure and like the way firms take collateral and are actually securing the financing they're extending is different. A lot of the lending that happens is still fully collateralized across books. It's not like one firm can take advantage of multiple lenders and be like, I'm going to pledge you my Bitcoin, I'm going to pledge you my Bitcoin, and I'm going to pledge you the same Bitcoin, and I want financing from all of you. Like, There's a lot more transparency in terms of who actually has ownership of that collateral and the fact that it's also liquid because it's a bearer instrument. In traditional finance, okay, great. If you can give me a pledge on these assets as part of your balance sheet, maybe I can pledge it to another prime as well because they don't know if there's a first lien. And it gets a lot more murky. Crypto provides... This just natural transparency of like, okay, great. If I don't have the collateral assets, how am I actually ensuring that I'm risk mitigated? And there's a lot more diligence that then has to go into that. So I think by crypto being an inherent bearer instrument, and a lot of the lending is just fully collateralized where the lender literally can go sell that Bitcoin instantaneously because it's a highly liquid asset, changes the systemic risk picture a little bit. That being said, as our market evolves, lenders and new market participants are going to want to generate incremental return and alpha and stay relevant. And so they might start stretching down the risk curve and being like, oh, you know what? I'll lend against that exotic pledge agreement you have with so-and-so treasury, or I'll lend against this illiquid thing. They want to generate more interest revenue. So it really just comes down to asset selection of what you're comfortable lending against, how you manage that, how conservative you are with your own tolerance and what your board can get comfortable with. But I do think there's going to be a lot of lenders that will kind of continue to like reach to generate PL and it's going to come back to bite someone, there's going to be fallout of that. There's going to be other people that are exposed to that, investors, other lenders. It's certainly a risk. Any big financial services company overstretching on the risk curve to make up for the fact that their business isn't generating enough PL will provide more systemic risk to the space. And in a highly competitive early stage market like crypto, you just know that's going to happen. So I think like being early helps. Having a diversified business stream helps across spot derivatives and lending. They're not solely tied to our trading PL. 
And you can be patient because we built a good business. We have a ton of free cash flow. Whereas other businesses are not as patient. Those are going to be the ones that I think get bit. And then how people manage the fallout is on them. There's certainly systemic risk in crypto lending and financing as there is in traditional lending and financing as well. If I categorize your business as traditional prime brokerage with the trading and the derivatives and the lending, I'm going to say you call that traditional crypto lending. It's the worst word I could come up with right now, but traditional crypto lending versus DeFi, where you lock your assets in a contract. You've got contract risk. You also have counterparty risk, probably none of which you can analyze. What's Genesis's take on that? Do your clients do that? Do you give access to that? How do you participate in the DeFi markets? It's an evolving thing for us. One, we know obviously DeFi is here to stay. It's getting more and more robust. There are different DeFi protocols and pools across different L1s now. It's not just ETH. Our view is that it's likely going to be a bigger and bigger part of financial infrastructure at both the retail level, once the consumer app part of it gets better, and at the institutional level. And at the end of the day, it's just another way to put capital to work to generate yield or take capital from a pool to do something with it. And we obviously have to to be part of that if we're going to succeed, I think, long-term in our business. And we know that. But at the same time, being a broker-dealer and being relatively conservative, we also have to think about how we feel about that from a KYC regulatory perspective. What framework can we actually build to interact with DeFi permissionless versus permission? So as of right now, we're not doing anything direct in DeFi permissionless. But we are working with companies like Maple, for instance, that has permission pool. We're the beneficiary of liquidity with a pool of lenders on Maple, for instance, as an unsecured borrower. We're working with them to maybe be a delegate in another pool that they build on a different chain. So there's going to be ways that we can interact. We're also looking at compound treasury, where to basically be part of that program, you have to actually onboard and go through the KYC process to be part of the treasury and you can earn 4% as a liquidity provider there. And we can just simply use our Firebox custody framework to basically deploy assets into compound treasury and earn yield in a permissionless world. So there's ways that we can interact now while we build out how we're going to do this longer term and what structure we need to create to do this ultimately in a fully direct permissionless manner. DeFi as a service companies like Into the Block, for instance, that will basically act as a counterparty that sits between you and the actual permissionless pool. And so we might leverage software as a service DeFi as a service partners to help us kind of accomplish accessing those yields. Because at the end of the day, like if those yields are outsized relative to other strategies, we need to have access to them to be a competitive lending firm. It's all evolving, but it's all super interesting too. So you can tell you guys are really working on it. I guess, are the biggest gating issues legal concerns? Is it technology? Is it something else? Why doesn't Genesis have this today? It's mostly just trying to make sure we do this in legal structure that makes sense, a regulatory framework that makes sense. And then from there, I think the technology and risk framing and how much capital do we want to allocate to this versus other things, that's the easy part. But I think the legal infrastructure and regulatory framework is stuff that we're spending a lot of time thinking about to make sure we're equipped to do. What's your view on decentralized versus centralized exchanges? So today... I think decentralized has about 10% of the share. So this is a place where uh, a person can come and swap one token for another token versus a centralized exchange like a Coinbase where you deposit money, you buy something from a central order book. Some people think that DEXs are going to take over the world. Some people think that DEXs will be regulated away. What's your take? There's no doubt that DEXs are obviously becoming a larger and larger part of the crypto economy. To my point earlier, it's not just happening on, on ETH. There's... You know, Dex is now on Solana, on Luna, on even Algorand. I feel like there's this arms race across these different L1s to really compete as like, who's going to have this first killer app that scales and consumer friendly that radically changes like how people think about just liquidity and bar lend and just your own bank and able to take one asset, swap into the other without having to go through onboarding on these centralized exchanges. So to me, that concept's only going to gain traction. I think that there's definitely a lot of regulatory risk to it as well. I mean, it's people always say though, it's like, who are the regulators going to crack down on? There is no centralized platform for them to crack down on, but I think that they can still go after some of these founders or the major contributors or the developers. So I do think that there's going to be some fallout there. If I had to guess, there's no way that there's going to be no regulatory oversight and involvement. It's just trying to figure out like when. 
So I think that'll be like a headwind. But at the same time, I think it's part of this natural progression of the market structure that is decentralized and people want to be autonomous in what they can do with their capital and how they can spend it. And the developers are only going to make it easier for that to happen. The force is too great for regulation to kill it, though I think it will be a short-term headwind. And because of that, Genesis needs to obviously position itself knowing that this might be the reality and we need to take advantage of that as well. Moving cautiously and slowly, we know that we're going to need to figure out how we integrate directly. Maybe we can be a market maker on chain and do that. And it's an evolving thing. One thing I heard you say on a prior podcast, the PIF protocol or the project where they're trying to act as an oracle for information. Just talk a little bit more about your desire to share data, because I think this is unique in traditional finance, especially over-the-counter markets like fixed income. You're constantly going out of your way to not share information. So on large trades, like a $5 million corporate bond trade, like I'll tell you five minutes later where it traded because nobody wants that information to leak. And here you are, the central party, talking about posting your trade. So that doesn't seem like the traditional ethos of public markets. I think a lot of this has to do with just the crypto community, even at the institutional level, is still under this mentality of trying to grow the pie and produce really good content and platforms and products. And we're willing to do that even if we have to eat a little P&L, share some of our data to do it, because it still makes sense to like the company's mission. And Genesis is like a crypto digital currency company first. It's been really cool to actually see how much involvement there's been on Pith. Obviously, Jump's done a great job of spearheading it. There's commitments from every major trading company out there in crypto that put their hand up to say like, yeah, we're going to provide data in some way, shape or form to participate in this new Oracle product. Jane Street committed, Bitstamp, Coinbase, Genesis, DRW, GSR, basically every trading firm under the sun in crypto said, yeah, like work on PIP. So that's been really cool to see. And to your point, pretty unexpected to see like how wide the interest is. These firms want to see the growth in the space. We're not yet at the point where it's a zero-sum game. And so I think ultimately that becomes a trade-off, but not yet. So PIP is going to be really cool. Genesis is obviously going to be a contributor in terms of just our data from a pricing perspective so that we can obviously be part of the network and part of the data providers to the PIF network. But yeah, it's been really cool to see the growth there. I think that's so cool. It's come up many times on this zero-sum versus positive-sum difference between the new and the old market. NFT lending. So this is something you've talked about. I'd love to get your take. I love NFTs. Spend a lot of time in that space. How does that work? Why does that make sense? It's not fungible Bitcoin and it would be a completely different risk profile. So why does NFT lending make sense? I'll start by saying this is very much a pilot program for Genesis. It is basically a de minimis part of, of our active load portfolio of $12.5 billion. We understand that this is super new. It's also a lot more risky in the fact that we built our business around like hyper-liquid collateral. And this is the opposite in that these are literally non-fungible. The argument for it is that we do think that generally NFTs are becoming a bigger part of the crypto economy and they likely will continue to take more and more share of just the activity from a trading perspective, from an ownership perspective, just like a gateway for people to engage in crypto. From like a bringing people to Genesis, it's a great platform for us to do that, to say, okay, great. If you're trading NFTs or you're buying NFTs or you have NFT exposure, we might be able to help from an institutional liquidity perspective and actually give you financing if it's the right basket of NFTs or the right NFT itself. So for us, I think it makes sense. Blending and financing is the easiest way for us to do that initially, especially with existing counterparties that we have recourse to, or we have a relationship built with where it's not solely just the collateral of the NFT that we're taking risk on. So that being said, we are lending somewhere less than $10 million or so in aggregate against a variety of different NFTs. We actually financed the purchase of one of the golden apes on the Sotheby's auction that Metaphor Capital won. So they're a partner to Genesis. We've done a bunch with Metaphor actually on various purchases. So we've done some pretty cool stuff. Our hope is to kind of continue to grow that slowly and with the right counterparties and the right NFTs. It's a cool, like, budding part of the business. And as we start to see more and more involvement, we could take a bigger role. Like, for example, if you think of YGG, 
the in-game breeding and stuff and actually being able to get some leverage on those NFTs that are productive in that world economy, Genesis might be able to plug in as the institutional partner there in some way, shape, or form. And that's just one way I can visualize how we might extend into the metaverse to some degree to be a financing partner. But it's basically just bringing our balance sheet, the metaverse, and into NFT gaming or just NFTs generally that we want to make sure we're connected to. It's really interesting. I try to end every podcast with the same question. What are you most excited seeing built over the next six months? And what are you most excited to see built over the next six years? Over the next six months, I think there are so many interesting DeFi protocols and platforms being built across chain that it's hard to ignore. I feel like every week there's a new protocol that does something slightly different than another one. So like just to see the pace of evolution there gets me excited because it's like clearly going to be part of financial services and it will be the way that folks interact autonomously without any centralized exchange or medium, which I think is just really, really cool to see. I'm curious to see like which protocols actually become the market leaders. Is it going to be on ETH? Is it going to be on Solana? I'm excited to kind of see the competitive market structure there to say like, hey, which platforms are going to be king over the next six months to 12 months. So I'd say short term, it's probably DeFi. And long term, I would say it's definitely more like the metaverse stuff, trying to really figure out what does this market even look like in six years? Like, how is it all going to play out? When you think about the early internet, you couldn't even fathom or like visualize the benefits of that at that point. You would have never expected that in six years some car you could call on your phone. It's going to show up right outside your house to get any place you want all because of an internet connection and this company that was built on the internet. And I feel like it's similar now. It's like we're trying our best to figure out, okay, what are the use cases and the applications we can build? Going to get easier and easier to see that as time goes on. I'm excited to kind of see how the ambiguity of our space actually starts to produce some really cool killer concrete apps in the metaverse, whether it's like in Decentraland in some sort of NFT play to earn or something of that nature. I just want to see how that scales over time and plays out. So I would say those two things. Well, Matt, thank you for joining me today. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you very much for having me, Eric. And I'm sure we'll chat more again soon. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com. 